Thanks for pressing play. If you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur in real conversation, you're in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the number one real dialogue podcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. I'm producer Jason DeFilippo, and on behalf of all of us here, we are glad you're joining us today for this amazing conversation. The most powerful thing you can be is 100% yourself. And specifically, be the things that make you uniquely you. You're different. But we live in a world that values sameness, that drives conformity. That lack of openness to different can cause significant problems for adults. And for kids, it can be devastating. Especially for children with neurodifferences like ADHD, dyslexia, autism, and many more. Children get labeled as being defective, lazy, or having a disability. When in reality, they're different. As a matter of fact, one in five people are neurodifferent. Our guest today is Kayla Taylor, the author of Canaries Among Us, a mother's quest to honor her child's individuality in a culture determined to negate it. If you're different, you love someone who's different, or have a child in your life who's different, you're going to love this conversation with Kayla. And pay special attention to the part of this dialogue about how we're all grappling with, on one hand, being caring and sensitive to the needs of others, and on the other hand, not being so overly careful that we can't say anything to anybody about anything for fear of being criticized or canceled. Now, to thrive today, legendary marketing leaders and creators are using creator capital to design and dominate their categories. That's why you need a mighty network. On a mighty network, you can bring together your community, memberships, online courses, webinars, and events in one place under your brand on a platform that you control. Plus, when you're ready, you can run your Mighty Network on your own branded mobile apps. So if you want to dominate your category, mobilize your community, and drive new growth fast, go to MightyNetworks.com. And Category Pirates has released a new and exciting creation to the world. The 22 Laws of Category Design. Name and claim your niche, share your POV, and move the world from where it is to somewhere different. The 22 Laws of Category Design is specifically tailored for entrepreneurs, marketing professionals, business leaders, solopreneurs, and consultants who think different. Through powerful insights and practical advice, this book will give you a unique roadmap to defy conventional thinking and create categories of consequence. Get your copy today at Amazon.com. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Kyla, it sure is great to meet you. It's great to be here, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And thank you for the important work of your book. Well, thank you for reading it. I'm grateful. It's always humbling when people take the time to um, validate and bear witness to your experience. I think, as you know by now, since you've read the book, it was a very vulnerable endeavor. Yes. There were many times when I... <laughs> honestly did came so close not to publishing up until the very last minute. Um, yes. I remember last summer I was sitting around and telling myself, okay, some reviews or professional reviews are going to come through first. One in particular, I won't name them, but was known to be quite critical. And so I was expecting them just to tear the book apart. And I thought if that happens, I'll just, I don't, you know, I'll just pull the plugs on this. I don't need to do this. And, um, you know, fortunately it was, 
it was a really kind review, maybe even glowing. And so I, I took that as a sign that I need to do this. Um, while it's vulnerable for me, there um, is so much stigma around the issues that I cover in the book um, and someone needs to tackle those. And I really felt somewhat of a obligation to pay it forward so that um, I could support others in a way I wish I had been supported. And to be fair, a lot of other people have written stories, um, but a lot of times they're written as adults reflecting back on childhood experiences or um, parents don't feel like they can tell the story in the moment because they would be betraying their kids' privacy. So there's very little written in the moment of what's happening now as you're raising children with learning differences who are being bullied. And so I just felt that I, I needed to offer that to the world because I really would have valued that myself um, when I was in the trenches. Yes. Now, I think I know the answer, but I want to hear your answer, uh, Kyla, which is you've written this book under a pseudonym. Right. And um, can you just unpack a little bit about why that's the case? Sure. So when my family was deep in our quagmire, and again, we were dealing with bullying, learning differences, anxiety, and a whole lot more, I felt very isolated and alone. I looked everywhere for a memoir from a parent but I couldn't find one. Like I said, I, I found ones that were told retroactively 20 years later, but I wanted something in the moment that felt more poignant. And I couldn't find that book, um, which made me feel even more isolated. So I wrote this book. I really wanted this book to offer it to the world, but at the same time, I wanted to honor my kids' privacy. And actually not only my kids' privacy, but there are some children who um, bullied others, who behaved uh, really quite poorly, and I just didn't feel like those children deserved to have their worst moments published on a national scale. Um, I like to believe that all children, you know, hopefully will have the opportunity to learn from their mistakes and grow and become better people. Um, but a public shaming would not allow that. <laughs> so um, I decided the best way to offer a story and protect people's privacy and not shame people would be to use a pseudonym. Yes. There was probably another element. In my book, I, I covered not only bullying, um, but then, so bullying, I did not know this, but I now know this, is a form of victimization. And so I started looking into uh, lots of different kinds of victimization. And what I learned is the way we as a society, as communities around the United States, respond to people who have been victimized is tragic. We basically end up re-traumatizing people who've been hurt. So for example, if someone was assaulted on a campus, um, or, you know, this happens in the military. We often don't support those individuals in the way we need. People protect their own image. They worry about legal concerns. They do everything but center people who have been hurt the most. So I didn't feel like I could write a book about how important it is to center the victims and protect their privacy and their autonomy and then go ahead and publish a book and um, basically out everybody and not walk the talk. So um, I didn't want to be a hypocrite. So that's another reason I used a pseudonym. Yes. That's what I uh, anticipated, you might say, or something along those lines. But I, I think it was important to touch on. Now, I have <laughs> thousands of questions for you, but I really want to start where you want to start. Where would you like to start this conversation? There, there are several themes. I think one of the things that we would be remiss if we didn't get into is just the general idea of how instinctually we are raised to feel comfortable around people who are like us and how much we lose when we do that, how much we 
miss the joy out of life when we don't appreciate people's differences. You do know that you are, not only are you singing to the choir, but you're singing the choir's favorite songs when you sing <laughs> around here. Wonderful. So why does it, why does it mean, why did what I say mean so much to you? What, what struck you? Well, I think this is something that is missed by many and is part of our mission around here, which is we connect on our similarities. You and I share main, many things. For example, we're both authors and we could go through a list of things that you and I would connect on and could talk about. And there are many things that you and I probably enjoy that are the same or very similar. And those things are wonderful. I love watching football games and basketball games with my buddies. And I love going on, you know, walks with my wife and my buddies and my wife love those things too. So all that's very cool, very important. Human beings mm -hmm. connect often mm -hmm. on their similarities. Mm -hmm. However, we most want to be valued and we most want to be loved for our differences because is that's powerful. Our differences are what makes us us. There are lots of people who love to watch the basketball finals and that's great. And there's only one you and there's only one me and there's certain very unique things about you that make you you as there are about me. And if we're going to be friends, then you want me to love and respect and admire you for those unique things more so than you do about the fact that maybe we love to watch a basketball game or go for a nice walk along the ocean together. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it's easy to stuff ourselves in a box and we spend all our lives doing that. But if we can stray from that box and show something vulnerable and weak about us and we don't get shut down, I mean, that's such a gift. Yes. So. Um, Maybe let's go to um, learning differences. Okay. So tell me about your experience and your family's experience. Right. So I'll be honest, at first I didn't really recognize, I, I mean, I recognize my kids are unique and different in their own ways and different from one another. But I really started diving into the world of understanding learning differences when my child was being bullied at home. And I started to realize that my child was being bullied for being quirky, you know, liking math and science when other kids liked playing, you know, Foursquare and house. Um, and my child has an extraordinary language um, for their age and was teased for that. Um, so I started realizing that that my kids, my child was being teased for being different. And I started doing research on this. Um, and I learned that one in all five people have a diagnosable learning difference. And that includes things like dyslexia and ADHD. But actually that statistic doesn't include things as far as I can tell, like sensory processing, mental health issues, physical impairments. So if you include all of those quite all those things that affect learning in a classroom, a huge portion of the population um, is affected. But our classrooms, you know, were designed um, at the turn of the century during the industrial, second industrial revolution when Taylorism was all the rage and they were looking to put kids on assembly lines or, you know, young adults on assembly lines. And the, there was a huge use of bell-shaped curves and standardization. Nothing was being done to help identify people's individual strengths and help people be the, their best selves. And unfortunately, 
our, you know, our system has changed a little bit, but really not much at all. So we still have a very hard time, especially in some of our most important institutions, which, you know, the education system, um, in honoring p- kids who, who, as who they are, which of course means then, you know, those people grow up into adults who don't feel valued for who they are. So doing what you do, try to break out and show your uniqueness is a really hard thing to do after having spent decades um, being demeaned for it or being shut down for that. Yes. And um, some of us have no choice, Kayla. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so radically different in so many ways that um, it, it, it was and is my only option. And you may know, but I have, uh, it depends on how you want to define them, but four or five uh, discernible uh, learning differences. Mm-hmm. And for the record, I do not have a GED. Right. And I became the head of marketing of a publicly traded software company at 28 years old. Well, if you look at a lot of people who run organizations, a lot of them dropped out of universities. You know, if you look at Albert Einstein, he did not do well in school. I, you know, unfortunately, we have this very rigid, con- uh, contrived system that doesn't fit a lot of people. So they do get their GED or not and drop out, but that doesn't mean that they're not wholly capable. In fact, <laughs> you know, perhaps in many ways more capable. I mean, if you look at, I bet you'd have a very hard time thinking of a famous um, scientist from our past that wasn't uh, believed to be on the autism spectrum. Um, you know, People who are believed to have dyslexia include like Louis Pasteur, Thomas Edison, Alexander Graham Bell, and more recently, Steven Spielberg, Walt Disney, many great CEOs like William Hewlett, Charles Schwab, John Chambers. Yes. Uh, actually, I've heard that's debatable, but, but I think we, we, I don't know if he ever acknowledged any specific learning differences, but I think we can all agree. Anybody who, spent, <laughs> anybody who yeah. spent any time with Steve Jobs knows that um, he was a very different dude. Right. And, you know, Bill Gates. Very um, different you know, dude. The list is endless. Whether they have publicly acknowledged a difference or not, um, if you look at the people who end up making amazing contributions to this world, I mean, look who's shooting people into outer space right now. It's all people who think differently, right? So it's just unfortunate that we, we don't have a place for these people in our education system um, because the consequence of not acknowledging learning difference, you know, for these few exceptions, um, it ended up working out. But for a lot of people, the shame, the associated anxiety can be debilitating and tragic even. Um, And if you want, we can talk a little bit about the the consequences of of not acknowledging learning differences, because um, a lot of very, very capable children uh, end up believing they're not capable and end up have a very hard time functioning in the world and, it, and it's no fault of their own. You, I mean, you are fortunate. You are particularly strong will. I mean, I don't know, maybe you can talk about how you were able to, to rise above the messaging you got, but that's, that's a very difficult thing to do. And I, I just don't believe kids should have to do that. You know, it's funny, Kayla, because I've thought about this a lot. I thought about, well, if I grew up at a time where there was not only awareness of learning differences, Mm-hmm. but a broad understanding that if you have a learning difference, the likelihood you have an extraordinary superpower is very high. Mm-hmm. And the next aha, and this is the controversial one for people, learning differences, counter to what the state of fucking California tells children, 
is not a disability. Mm. And I'll go even further. Mm-hmm. Please do. Normal brain people should be taught how to think like the neurodifferent. It is us. Yes, or at least at the very least, appreciate it. Appreciate the value. So, you know, for example, kids with dyslexia um, have, you know, at their base, a wider visual perception mode, and they are told they are disabled and disordered, right? But I know in my family, I, I know several people who are dyslexic, and the data shows actually that, yeah, they might have a harder time reading, but on average, people with dyslexia notice the bigger picture more. They're able to connect dots. They have strong social skills. They have higher levels of creativity. And if you just pathologize these kids and just uh, take them, flatten them to, to their biggest weakness, you've missed the whole point. You've, you've, you've missed the, the essence of, of this child who then will grow up to be an adult. Um, you know, I could say the same thing about ADHD. These kids have trouble sitting in chairs. Yeah and staring at whiteboards, you know, who wouldn't, but, um, they have this amazing ability, contrary to the, the, the name attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. That's pathologized twice, by the way. Um, they often don't have a uh, attention deficit. They have an attention deficit in things that don't interest them, but in areas of interest, um, people with ADHD are able to hyper-focus. They have high resilience. They're shown to have higher levels of creativity, conversation skills, spontaneity. You know, I could go on about autism. Like, there's almost nothing, uh, no learning difference or uh, neuro difference that you can name where I couldn't tell you that scientifically they've been shown to have many strengths, which unfortunately are totally overlooked because these kids are pathologized, given the language that you just talked about, and are told their lesson. And if they can't operate in school, then they're lazy and stupid. Um, when, you know, I don't need to tell you, <laughs> look what you're doing. It's Have absent. you been reading my uh, old report cards, Kayla? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but I've, you know, I've read a lot of other ones. Um, and actually, <laughs> they all read very similarly, don't they? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Kid cannot focus. Kid is lazy. Kid's not trying hard enough, right? There's actually, you know what you might want to read is there's this Christopher's not applying called... himself in math, Kayla. <laughs> Turns out I have dyscalculia. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, So you might actually want to read. um, I don't know if they have an audio form if you happen to be dyslexic, but there was a great report called Forward Together that was published by this group called Understood and NCLD. And I found it to be hugely vindicating myself. Um, But it shows Forward Together? Forward Together. Okay. Uh, You can find it on the NCLD site and maybe through Understood. They helped co-publish it. And the Gates Foundation actually, I think, contributed a lot to its publishing or, or the research behind it. But they found that um, only 17% of teachers feel very well prepared to teach students with even mild to moderate learning differences. So they feel overwhelmed and unsupported. And the state accrediting process does the same thing. It does not require teachers to understand anything about learning differences. And at first, I didn't believe this. So I actually went to the websites of the colleges and universities that are considered to be leaders in teaching people how to be educators, you know, the leading education schools in the country. And I looked at their curricula and I could, I think only on one did I find the word neurodiversity. And that was for a one-off symposium. Nothing was integrated into their curriculum. Um, When they talked about differences, it was under the auspices of special education. So meaning 
these kids are so different and uh, that we need to separate them. We need to segregate them into another classroom. And you could actually become a special ed teacher with only taking one class um, in learning differences. But most teachers can be fully accredited, fully graduated uh, from the top universities in the country and not know one thing about learning differences. And again, remember, at least 20% of all people have learning differences. So we're totally setting the teachers up for failure. And then that just caught, well, you know, lack of ignorance or not lack of ignorance causes, um, as you know, judgment, like one in three teachers view learning differences or attention issues as laziness, as we were talking about. One in four believe learning differences can be outgrown when in fact they are neurological. It, it's different wiring in the brain. You don't outgrow that. You like There's such a thing as neuroplasticity where you can grow your brain, like cr create new synapses or connect new synapses, but you're not changing fundamentally your wiring. Um, and oh, kids aren't the only ones who are judged. Parents, too. One in four believe um, ADD and ADHD is a result of bad parenting. So there's this lack of understanding and lack of teaching teachers um, ends up causing so much strife in families and also for teachers. You know, teachers go into this profession because they want to help people. And instead, they're not giving the tools and resources and information they need. And then so people get mad at them. And I don't know, I just feel like we're setting them up for failure. They should be you know, the people we laud and value most, and we should be paying them well, and we should be providing them the resources they need, and and our systems are failing on this count. Amen, hallelujah, sister. <laughs> so, you know, I would love to see those report cards, and I would probably tear <laughs> them up for you or write a new one. I mean, I would... I would love to see those. Um, not though they might they might make me sad and cry. Just it's heartbreaking. They are to sad. See, They're heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to see what we tell young, capable kids, full of hope, full of promise, full of excitement and joy and curiosity, and we just smash it out of them. It, it's depressing. And radical creativity. You know, my um, uh, dear friend, Ted Dintersmith, who's a legendary VC on the East Coast, he was one of the co-founders of Charles River Ventures. Hmm. He spent the better part of a decade traveling around the U.S., Kayla, going and looking at schools in every state, horrible schools, great schools, and ones in between, mm -hmm. and gathering data, learning and listening. He wrote a wonderful book called What School Could Be. Hmm. And, um, and I'm, I don't want to speak for him. So I will tell you what I think I learned from what he has taught me. Let me say it that way. Uh, number one, the greatest thing we can do for students is give them radical agency. So why would you force a child who, uh, like for myself, math was over in grade three. Mm -hmm. So, why would you try to continuously force calculus down my throat when there were all these other areas that were natural for me that I had superpowers in? Amen. So that was the first piece. Uh, I don't want to speak for Ted. I have come to the conclusion that until people who are roughly 35 and younger today are running the education system, the likelihood uh, agency-based curricula is mainstream is virtually zero. Translation, I've given up on the current generation of educators and their ability to understand this. I'm curious as to what your reaction to that is. Well, I think it's sad, but I understand your frustration. I think it's justified. Um, you know, the system is so entrenched and needs 
uh, to use your word, a, a radical makeover uh, to understand and value the variety of our humanity. And, you know, while what you said is depressing, you also provided a lot of hope too, right? There is a generation of people coming, generations, who, um, you know, because of the work you're doing and, you know, work a lot of other people doing the work of this book that you just talked about, they are a little better off than we were, right? And so hopefully, and, and I've seen it, right? But I, I believe they have the capability and the opportunity to really upend this thing and change the way that we think and support children in schools. And, you know, by the way, support teachers in those schools so that they can uh, yes. help children be their best selves. Now, here's why uh, I've come to that place. Major school systems, including New York, Los Angeles, I believe Chicago, Seattle, and many others, have banned the use of ChatGPT and Baird. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing more radically evident about uh, to demonstrate how out of touch educators are, because AI and technology um, is the future, and what they don't understand is. If you are under the age of 35 today, you are a native digital. That is to say, your primary life experience in most cases is digital first and analog second. Mm -hmm. And you and I are somewhat of the same vintage, I would imagine. Um, And if you're over 35-ish, you are among the last living native analogs. That is to say, people who grew up in a world where their primary life experience was analog first and even... I would assume you do, certainly I do, have an incredibly rich digital life, and I've been living on the internet since before most native digitals were born. My primary life experience will be always analog. My point in all that, Kayla, is um, people who run our education system today aren't even aware of that. Right. And so when they take the future away from our kids, they're fucking them. And as my friend, legendary author Diego Pena says, if a robot can do your homework, you need different homework. <laughs> well, exactly. And, you know, I'll admit that uh, my area of expertise is not AI. Um, you know, I hear a lot of experts coming out and warning us about, you know, the potential problems. But I think to your point, there's also a lot of th- positive things that can come out of AI. Um, you know, when we were younger, so t- you know, I'm 50. Um, there was when I'm I first heard school, there's no such. <laughs> okay, so we're close. Um, there was no such thing as computers, right? So I remember at least that were in our homes. Um, and so when spell check came along, it, it was like, oh my gosh, these kids are never going to have a spell. Like everything's going to go, you know, to hell in a handbasket. And of course, we just ended up deciding that maybe there are things more important than spelling, and it's okay to let a computer do that. Same thing with the World Wide Web, right? Like kids were now going to be able to cheat because of all the information that was available. And instead, what's happened is now we make kids just memorize less. You know, I had to memorize all the presidents in order. Da da da. My kids don't have to memorize that now because they, in a way, they're they're doing more advanced thinking. <laughs> they're not just memorizing; they're analyzing ideas and and thinking about how different ideas come together in, in probably a higher level of education. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. We, it sounds like we can't the cat's out of the bag with AI. Um, we probably need and to be thank careful. God, <laughs> you know, all these luddites screaming the sky is falling have lost their fucking minds. Look, is AI a different technology that we have to be certainly super thoughtful of? And could it 
you know, do some serious damage here? Of course. Mm -hmm. And the Luddites are always wrong. And as it relates to um, people and children of, uh, with neurodifferences, I look at it today, Kyla, and I say, wow, how would my life had, had been different had somebody given me chat GPT when I was five? Mm-hmm. Me and my collaborators, we've written 13 number one best-selling books. And I was told I can't write. <laughs> and so that's the other part of this thing that people are not talking about, which is, um, and this is the thing that native analogs miss. The technology creates an opportunity for a different future, an exponentially different future. And yet they want to uh, disconnect our children from that future. Kids today in school, in my opinion, who are not working with AI now, high school, uh, middle school, grade school, uh, are going to be at a huge disadvantage because um, this technology is going to be ubiquitous. Right. And what they don't understand is this. This is the big transition. We live at a time where the old paradigm of success as a working person is no longer valid. So Peter Drucker, 50 plus years ago now, coined the term knowledge worker to draw the distinction between people who work with their minds and people who work with their muscles. And when we were growing up, what did our parents want us to be? Doctors, lawyers, nurses, uh, accountants. In other words, high-paying, high-knowledge work jobs. And the way you got those jobs was you spent a lot of time and money acquiring knowledge, studying the presidents, Mm -hmm. so that you could get a job where you were paid to apply that knowledge. Mm -hmm. We live at a time where the value of existing knowledge is dropping exponentially every day because we can ask a robot about that. Mm -hmm. And so where's the new value in the work world if it's not acquiring and applying existing knowledge? Well, the new value in the new world is the ability to create net new knowledge, net new intellectual capital, net new creative ideas to stand on the shoulders of, of knowledge and create the new, what around here we call creator capitalists, people Mm -hmm. who create things for a living, either for themselves and or for their employer. And so it's not about memorizing knowledge. It's about being able to create net new things, standing on the shoulders of those who brought us that knowledge because the internet makes the knowledge ubiquitous and, and as close to free as it's ever been. And, and this is the part that uh, I find so upsetting about our education system is a failure to understand even the most basic things that are happening in plain sight that seem to evade many. I hear you. And, you know, to harken back to the beginning of our conversation, it, it, it's exciting. It, again, I don't know enough about AI to have a strong opinion as you do. I understand that some people find it scary, but I I do feel the potential is exciting for kids who learn differently and it can be used to help 
honor them and the way they think and help them create things um, that their mind sees that other people don't and help them be their best selves. And I wonder if it also will like cause us, I wonder what you think about this, cause us to rethink the way we define intelligence. So like even our like IQ tests now, right? Right. They measure about 10 discrete factors that are arbitrarily chosen. They don't include include things like common sense, creativity, divergent thinking, grit, a lot of things that people believe um, are important for survival. And so I, I wonder, you know, I wonder what you think about how we'll start defining intelligence and, um, you know, labeling kids and people going forward. Uh, it's so amazing we're having this conversation. So um, none of us, to the best of my knowledge, with maybe some exceptions, certainly in high school, grade school, get taught to think. Most people actually, and this is a controversial statement, do not think. And here's my hypothesis. Um, there's a, a, a very learned man named Roger Martin, and Roger's considered to be the modern Peter Drucker and, um, and, and the greatest uh, thinker about business today by many. And uh, he was on the podcast a little while ago. He has a new book out about think. I think the new book is called The New Way to Think. And we had this conversation. And here's my synthesis of that. Mm-hmm. What most people call thinking is what Roger explains is reflexive thinking. Mm-hmm. So you say abortion. I have an immediate reaction. I have an opinion about abortion and I'm ready to tell you all about it. I just have that opinion. Mm-hmm. I may not have thought very much about that opinion. I have that opinion because that's the opinion that I've had. And it's probably a long time ago that I thought about it. And so I spew my reflexive, just like a reflex, just like when we go to the doctor and she bangs the little thing on your knee and your leg goes, whoop, um, my reflexive reaction comes out. Most people think that's their thinking. Mm-hmm. Thinking is what Roger describes as reflective. So you say, okay, well, abortion, what do I really think? Mm-hmm. Guns. What do I really think? I've heard this. I've heard that. I feel things. But let me actually do some thinking. You know, let me say something controversial about that. People want to ban the AR-15. Okay. Well, think about that. Most people who say that don't know what an AR-15 is. It's a rifle. Okay. Well, it turns out there's lots of rifles. And there's lots of rifles that have very similar, if not exactly the same characteristics of an AR-15. So you could ban the AR-15, and I understand why people want to, but you're not going to fix the problem because the people who want to do evil things with, uh, with rifles are still going to do them. And so you have to have a conversation knowing what the fuck you're talking about if you're going to have the conversation. And anybody who takes that adamant position immediately exposes themselves for being ignorant. Now, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with whether or not we should ban rifles. All I'm saying is most people, when they take that position, expose their stupidity 
without even realizing it because they're engaged in a reflexive discussion. I don't want children being murdered at schools. And so let's ban the weapon that people used to do that. It makes sense emotionally. I understand it completely. I don't want mm-hmm. children being hurt in any way. Mm-hmm. However, unless you educate yourself and unless you actually begin to think. So one of our favorite expressions, Kyla, around here is thinking about thinking mm-hmm. is the most important kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. And yet we don't teach our children to actually think. No, you know, I would agree with you. Um, and, and you're actually making me think of a section in my book about, you know, what you're calling reflexive thinking. Um, you know, in almost every arena in our society, people will say something and then another pe- person will react with their gut with a strong opinion, whether they've studied that a lot or not. And I find it interesting that people don't pause to consider, okay, who has studied this more than I have? Maybe I should learn from them and then, you know, and integrate that with different points of view before I come forward with my own opinion. But people feel very strongly about, um, there's no shame, there's no withholding. Um, People just spew their opinions with, you know, full confidence um, that they're right. And to the point that, you know, for example, in our experience, we were living the life of a child who was bullied and trying to support that children child. And people would say, oh, you're just being too sensitive. They weren't really bullied. And I wanted to say, you know, you weren't there. You didn't see the child crawled in a bed at night who wouldn't, didn't want to go to school the next day. But, but, you know, good friends of mine were so sure they understood my experience more than I did myself. Um, that it was amazing to me. And, you know, that is an experience-based one, but you also see it, um, you know, in the, in more, more uh, austere ways in, you know, intellectual arenas where people spend their entire lifestyle times studying something. And then people who come in at the last minute disagreeing, um, you know, well, of course I'll have a right to opinion, but I'm just, I wish there was a little more humility and curiosity before we come forward with such strong opinions. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. (laughs) I was at a conference about six months or so ago and uh, on stage having a sort of fireside chat and the topic of diversity, equity and inclusion came up. And um, I said, well, in some circumstances, people leading DEI in organizations have become the machine that they raged against. Yeah. Well, the room went mental. And there was a woman in the room who was the senior uh, vice president of worldwide DEI for one of the most major technology companies on earth. And um, she wanted to argue with me about this. And I understand why she wanted to argue with me about this. And I could walk you through the specifics if it mattered. But I, with a few questions in front of the room, um, eviscerated her quote unquote logic. Mm-hmm. And we can't have that conversation. As a matter of fact, when we have that conversation, what people then do is they um, accuse you of things and call you names. So people refuse to stay in a fact-based discussion and they say, you're a blank. I'm, I'm, go fuck yourself. I'm not a blank. I'm just exposing what is happening. Mm-hmm. And so let's have a conversation about it. 
Uh, either DEI means DEI or it doesn't. But what DEI has become in some places is the things we think are good happen and everything else doesn't. Okay, well, that's not that different than the way it was before now, isn't it? <laughs> so you weren't necessarily saying that you don't believe equity and inclusion are important. Am I correct? You are more saying that the methods that we are using right now aren't achieving the goals that they set out to achieve. Is that what you were saying? Sort of. What I am saying is you're either for equity and inclusion of all or you're not. But what DEI has become in some places is equity and inclusion for some and not others. And the specific in this example, I was talking about swearing. Mm -hmm. And um, you're not allowed to swear at her company. You're going to get fired for it. And I swear. It's part of my self-expression. Mm -hmm. So I said to her, uh, why am I going to get fired for it? She said, because some people find it offensive. And I said, okay, so the harbinger of uh, what our culture at this company is going to accept and not accept is what some people find offensive. So I, she happened to be wearing a pink sweater. I said, I find your sweater offensive. So either stop wearing that sweater or I'm going to report you to HR and you're going to get fired. And what'd she say? She said, that's a ridiculous analogy. <laughs> I said, the fuck it is. Did, I but said, did your she sweater, stop to think before? I said, she... her sweat, I said, your sweater is part of your self-expression. Yes, yes. I find pink offensive. My swear, I'm not swearing at you. That's a very different thing. If I call you a pejorative name, that's very different than going, wow, that's a fucking great idea, Jimmy. Very different, mm -hmm. right? So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about self-expression. Mm -hmm. I also said to her, um, I don't have a GED. Could I get hired at your company? She said, probably not. And I said, well, then you are not neurodiverse. Mm -hmm. Because um, for me to get a GED, A, uh, would be extraordinarily hard. And B, would be an intergalactic waste of my time. Mm -hmm. And so you're not DEI. You're DEI for the list of things that we say are important and all other equity and inclusion can go fuck itself. Mm -hmm. and, and thus, you become the machine that you rage against. Mm -hmm. And so, am I for DEI? Absolutely. But I'm for real diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm for a real meritocracy, not a made-up one. Right. You know what you're speaking to? I, I kind of just lived this experience in a different way, and I'm not sure I'm going to say it well. But, um, you know, I, I actually finished this book in January of 2020. And um, we all know what happened right after that. And I held on publishing for a while because I did feel that um, there was a moment to be had for a racial re reckoning. Um, and I didn't want to compete with that. So I waited a few years. Um, but it's even now, in the beginning, I had to spend a lot of time. In fact, the pages I rewrote the most times in my book um, are not the gut-wrenching ones. Those I wrote really quickly just because I wanted to be done with them. Um, the ones I spent the most time rewriting and editing are the ones that considered, that conflated, that had an intersectionality with other issues, with other um, social justice concerns, because I was so worried. And it, I, I definitely experienced people saying, how dare you compare that to my experience? 
And, you know, I wasn't comparing it. Uh, I mean, it's similar to the extent that there are many different people who are marginalized for a wide variety of reasons. So that's similar. Their experiences are different. The way they're marginalized are often different. The extent to which they're marginalized is different. The tools that are used um, are often nuanced and, and vary. But I had a really hard, I had to think really hard about how I tried to promote the need for neurodiversity without offending other people or threatening other people. I, I think we're as a society getting a little better in understanding that us all operating in silos doesn't help. We all need to come together and support one another in no matter what the divergence, excuse me, is. Um, but I think we're still not great at that. And I, I'm still struggling to find a way to advocate for the neurodiverse without offending people. I haven't really articulated this before, so I don't no, know if I just articulated that no, well. I, you did. You did, Kyla, very well. So let me, let me bounce it back and see. Um, so on one hand, suck it up, buttercup. We don't want a world full of snowflakes. Oh. So don't be so easily offended. And the flip side is, you know what? There are certain, certain things you can say, maybe not meaning it, that will be hurtful to some people. Mm -hmm. And not just one, but a group of people. Mm -hmm. so I'll give you a simple example. When I was a little boy, I grew up in Canada. And the people who lived in northern Canada um, were commonly referred to as Eskimos. When I was a kid, we, they were just Eskimos. And at some point in my life, many years ago now, um, that group of people came forward and said, um, that's actually a derogatory term in our world. And we would prefer it if you call us Inuit. Mm -hmm. So to the best of my knowledge, the vast majority of people today call them the Inuit. And mm -hmm. we don't use the old term anymore. I live in California. And one of my favorite places to ski was up until very recently called Squaw Valley, California. Mm -hmm. Well, similar circumstance. It turns out that's a, a pejorative. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, uh, Indian communities came forward and said, we find this offensive. And to their credit, the ownership of that ski hill changed the name of the mountain. They change it mm -hmm. to an intergalactically stupid name, but that's got nothing to do with the point. <laughs> the point being is if that term is a, per, a pejorative in your language, in your culture, and you would prefer we use a different term all day long. I, that to so, me is not wokeism. That to me is trying to be a human being and treat people. Look, my name is Christopher. I like being called Chris or Christopher. Sometimes my wife calls me you fucker. I respond to all of them. <laughs> And, and if you call me Fred, I'm not going to respond. <laughs> so I'd prefer you call me either Chris or Christopher. Right. And so you do. And I call you Kayla because that's what you've asked me to call you, right. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. None of that's wokeism. It's called respecting <laughs> each other. Right. Well, and it's showing humility and centering people's lived experiences. You know, if that's your experience and if that's what means is important to you and um, if that word has been politicized or has a reference in a way that is hurtful, you know, I don't want to hurt people. So it, it's so easy for me to make a change of diction versus yes. um, it's so much harder for people to live with the trauma associated with certain words that, you know, gosh. And, and you can take <laughs> it too far. I'll, I'll give you a simple example. Um, one of my best friends was murdered. Mm -hmm. Well, the word killer 
shows up in our language everywhere. <sighs> that was a killer movie. That was a killer book. Oh, that was a yeah. Killer. That's yeah. A, it's everywhere. Yeah. Every time I hear it, it, it tweaks me. Yeah, of course it does. Now, if I'm in a business meeting and somebody uses a term, it's going to tweak me. And I suck it up buttercup. I'm not a snowflake. I realize I'm not, uh, that term is going to be in our world probably for as long as I'm alive in a positive sense like that. Mm -hmm. Now, in a business meeting, I'm not going to be the person on a Zoom with 25 people who, you know, raises my hand and says, uh, excuse me, Sally, you just hit a trigger word for me and blah, and make some big HR issue out of it. It's just part of the language. At the same time, if you and I are friends and you use that term on a regular basis, I will say to you, hey, Kayla, that one kind of hurts a little. If we could, if you could try something else, it would be much more comfortable for me. So again, I hear you, Chris. I would make an exception, at least for me. I appreciate it, and I'm hearing what you're saying, and I like that you're talking about difficult to discuss issues. Um, I I do think there's a difference between that word killer affecting you personally because you have a friend who was murdered ruthlessly versus a word that is used to describe an entire population and that the majority of that population is traumatized when they hear it. Um, I mean, I guess it's incumbent upon all of us to try. I, I and agree be with you, by sensitive. the way. I'm not, debate, I'm yeah. not debating that term at all. And so, uh, and it, like, I it, would, I would be want now want to be careful about using the word killer around you and maybe around anybody. But I, I also find it. I feel like I have. Um, you know, somewhat of a moral obligation living in a community with other people who aren't like me to really try and understand how the things I say affect others. And if I can hurt people less, you know, I'm happy to do that. I hear you saying that too. I hear you saying, but you just don't expect people to alter their behavior for you. I'm just trying to add on a little nuance. I think at some point, and I think you'll agree with me, at some point, we actually do bear need to bear the burden of understanding the impact, how our words land and um, using humility and yes. sensitivity. Yeah, to, to perhaps adjust our language. Because again, it's so easy to make a little change and it's so hard to live with the trauma associated with certain words. And I know trauma is uh, a big uh, word, but I, I actually, like you said, oh, you, have, you freeze, right? You, like you freeze no, no, when you hear that you word. Stop me, yeah. I'm now gone, I have to come back. It's not, it's, so um, this term trigger word, I understand in a way that I didn't before. Um, and I completely agree with you as it relates to a group of people. And sometimes it can change. You know, when I was a little boy, uh, my mother bought me a toy from Mattel that was called Negro G.I. Joe. That's what it was called. Mm -hmm. And then for a while, as, as we grew up, the term black became more uh, used. Okay, great. African-American was in there, too. Well, and that's what I was going to say. And then, oh. and then African-American. And for a while it was sort of like, well, okay, don't, don't say black. We'd prefer. Okay, great. And now it appears, you know, I have many black friends that the word black is how they want to be um, called. And, you know, we had Terry Williams on the podcast a while ago and she's the, uh, her and her husband run the largest quote unquote black bank in America. And, and great. Whatever you want to be called, let's mm -hmm. call you that. Mm-hmm. I yeah, self-determination, right? Why do I care? Mm -hmm. And of late, I have found, so I believe in diversity and different. 
And I believe there's no greater right than the right of full Mm self-expression. And um, I was somebody who did not have my pronouns on my social profiles just because I didn't feel the need to. Um, Not that I care what pronouns you, you would have 2000 different, I don't care what pronouns you want. I'll use whatever pronoun you want. But I, I just didn't feel the need to do, put it on my profile. I figure I, anybody who sort of looks at me can figure out what I probably am. But anyway, I just, for whatever reason, didn't do it. And of late, the persecution of um, the LBGTQ community, in particular the trans community, I have found incredibly upsetting. Upsetting to you? Oh, yes. Incredibly upsetting. And I, and I try... Kayla to understand what the fuck happened over my life because one of the first songs I learned to play on guitar was the Kinks Lola and that's a song about a boy losing his virginity to a transvestite Mm -hmm. and I've probably seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show 50 times and been up on stage with groups of teenagers um, singing songs um, by Frankenfurter the sweet transvestite and David Bowie's Rebel Rebel and on and on and on these things were not controversial, the best of my knowledge. And in some ways they were celebrated and now they're being persecuted and I find it disgusting. And so when you go to my LinkedIn profile, it says he, him, and it's my way of saying, Hey, listen, it, this is not okay with me. And if me putting he, him in my profile helps one person feel a little bit more comfortable or sends a message to one person that says, Hey man, you're different is good with me. Then that's, what I did. Right. Right. I get that. It's, um, you know, I don't need to write she, her for me, but I'm doing it to help create an environment where different people, um, feel comfortable without people assuming there's a certain norm. Right. Um, but it's complicated. I think we're, you know, in the middle of figuring all this out and it sounds like you care about being respectful and empathetic and, you know, you're still struggling. I'm still struggling. We're all, you know, but, but what I hear is you have curiosity in your voice and empathy and caring and, um, you know, th- th- that matters. And I, and I think we just need to keep trying. I, I don't know. I, I keep putting my foot in my mouth. <laughs> I'm trying no, no, not to, it, and I'm trying it, to no, learn every time I do. Well, yeah, but see, this is the thing. It's like, I'll give you another example. So I was brought up to be a gentleman. Those are the words my mother, or that was the word my mother used. You've got, you must be a gentleman. And she said, this is what gentlemen do. And this is what gentlemen don't do. Anyway, one of the things that, uh, language I use all the time is sir and Mm ma'am. Oh, thank you, sir. Maybe a waiter at a restaurant or maybe, you know, whatever it is, uh, sir. Oh, thank you very much, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. As a way to be polite. Well, um, There are certain people today that find that offensive. Well, okay, come on. I'm just trying to be a polite person. What the fuck do you want me to say? So I'm confused, Chris. Are you annoyed that they're coming to you? Or are you frustrated first and then introspective and reflective? I I guess when you talk, it sounds to me first like you're annoyed, but then you, by the end of your sentence, you often... Um, evolve a bit <laughs> and you seem well, open to the change. So I, I, I guess I want to understand it's if both. I'm understanding you correctly. Yeah. So here, here, maybe let me be super specific. Uh, if I interact with somebody in public who it does not appear, it's clear how they might like to be addressed. Then I don't use either sir or ma'am. 
And, and that's a judgment call, period. Mm-hmm. What I'm objecting to is those people who say that because I say sir or ma'am, that I am somehow anti-something. Now, if I call you something that you don't want to be called, then by all means, correct me. And I'll call you whatever you want me to call you. I, I, I was not trying to be offensive. I was trying to be polite. <laughs> right. And if that's not polite for you, that's okay. But, and this I think is an important but, don't get angry with me and don't uh, project some meaning on my use of that phrase, ma'am or sir, as anything other than I mean it. And if I got it wrong, great. Tell me what you want right. to be called. And I will happily call you that. So there's some line I think we're all trying to find here. I I hear you talking about two different issues here. One is intention, right? You didn't intend anything mean or wrong or bad. So it's upsetting to you when people perceive it that way, right? But then when you reflect further, you realize, well, just because you didn't intend something to happen, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. So you're willing to adjust, right? So there's this, uh, this... intention that we need to consider. But then there's also, um, from the other side, maybe the anger that you feel. And, you know, I suppose the other people have a right to anger, but maybe if we all want to be more productive with one another and not cause people to flinch and go inside, maybe we can find other ways to share our ideas about the ways things hurt us and landed on us. But, uh, Though that's hard in the moment because you're upset, right? And you're angry and they hurt you. So you want to lash back. But maybe we can all try and be more cognizant of ways to communicate that um, allow the other person to hear you. It sounds like it was hard for you to hear them at first because they... Well, and and it still is. Yeah. Because I, I think there is a term in in the law called the reasonable person test. And so... Uh, people who are trans and or non-binary, last time I looked, it was less than half a percent of the American population. So it's a pretty small minority. It's a big number, but as a percentage, it's a fairly small uh, minority. Mm-hmm. And so a reasonable person, when they, I'll use myself, when when you meet me, I probably look like exactly what I am, which is a heterosexual cisgender man. Mm -hmm. And so you could make the reasonable assumption that I'm a sir. Now, look, if I didn't want to be called sir, and I preferred to be called they, I will tell you that. And I would want that person to educate me kindly, knowing full well that I just made a mistake. That is a reasonable one because A, the persona that you project represents what is commonly thought to be in my case, a cisgender heterosexual man. And maybe I am and maybe I'm not, but it was a reasonable assumption. And so somebody that is obviously trying to be polite, who made what seems to be a reasonable assumption, maybe they got it wrong. Great. You tell them if they're respectful back, then we're good. Everybody's good. So I think there's there's a level of being reasonable with each other about some of these things on whichever side of an interaction we're having that seems to have been lost. I hear you. I, I guess 
I guess I just keep coming back, you know, to some of the central themes I tried to write about my book, about just valuing people's differences, letting people deter, you know, self-determination, who they are, um, and and really trying, look, I know what you're saying, to be introspective and rethink norms about how we perceive people, how we interact with people. Um, and it sounds like, you know, you and I could go back and forth for a while on the, on the topics we're discussing, but at the end of the day, hopefully we're all striving to respect one another more and coexist and not just tolerate one another. You know, people talk about what a great thing tolerance is. And I, and I agree. Um, but I don't like that word. Well, either, so Kayla. yeah, I, I'm I, not I, tolerating you. Right. Right. Don't you want to like, <laughs> don't you want to do more than tolerate one another? Like, don't you want to celebrate and yes. have joy and Yeah. Um, and you know how you say you really appreciate that this is a venue for appreciating people's differences. And um, so I think we're all, you know, in a moment now where we're trying to learn how to do that better. Hopefully. I mean, I, I guess I recognize yes. that not everybody is, but um, I'm struggling at doing that. It sounds like you're struggling at doing that, but hopefully, you know, our kids will benefit from the work we're doing now. And, um, you know, we're all just keep trying. Well, and, and the context matters the most. Right. So if a stand up comedian walks out on stage and says, good evening, motherfuckers, and everybody laughs. <laughs> and if the CEO of IBM started off an earnings call with that. Um, <laughs> Can you imagine? Right, the stock would probably be <laughs> off 25 points and we'd probably have a new CEO of IBM. <laughs> and here's the interesting thing. And I was taught this by a language expert. It could be exactly the same audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the context for sure matters. Now, there are certain words in our world that we have, as a society, agreed, context be damn, mm -hmm. you don't get to say those words. Mm -hmm. So, I would never use the C word in business. Thank you. I would never use the N word in any context, ever. Right. I don't even give a shit that my black friends use that word, and I'm not allowed to. I, I get it. It's not upsetting. It's not some First Amendment bullshit. It's, it's not some double. You know, I, I'm not wrapped around the axle. I know why I'm not allowed to say that word. And by the way, it's not personal to me either. Right. It's not. I didn't do anything bad. It's just what it, it's just what we've agreed to. And so I'm going to respect all of those things and, you know, many other examples. So maybe we'll get to a place, Kayla, where um, we don't say sir or ma'am anymore, where there's some other term that we use that is broader. I have no idea. And if we land there, that's fine. All I'm saying is when somebody is <laughs> clearly intending to be in this example, polite, being overly upset about that seems a little much sometimes. That's all. Maybe we can find kinder ways to interact with each other and help. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you for sure. Uh, you could be any, listen, you be anything you want. I went to, you know, the high school that I went to, is where all the freaks went because it was the only high school that we could go to. And so uh, myself included, when I say freaks, by the way, mm -hmm. <laughs> I use that as a term of endearment. Right. And so, uh, yeah, I got a lot of room for different. You know, Chris, I actually envy how you refer to yourself as a freak a bit. So, you know, we've been talking for a fair bit about uh, neurodiversity and um, I did the opposite of what you did. I played, hmm. I played the game. I played it well. 
I studied hard. I'm pretty sure I've never been diagnosed, but I'm pretty sure I'm inattentive to some in some extent to some extent. Like I had to read the same page three times. It took me, I'm sure, so much more time to do my homework than other people. But I did well. Um, I my my GPA was very high. Um, you know, I got you know I feel uncomfortable saying this because I normally don't talk about this stuff and, and I won't give you exacts because it's not important. But I'm saying this for a reason. I, I played the game so well that I achieved the accolades people wanted me to achieve. And at the end of the day, I had not pursued my interests, my passions. I graduated from college without knowing what my passions were. Um, I had a good GPA. I got a good job. Um, but, you know, I didn't take certain classes because I was worried they would bring my GPA down. I'm now fascinated by neurology and how brains work. But I didn't take those classes because they were intimidating to me, which was odd because I actually did okay in the science. I did well in the science classes in um, in high school. But, you know, maybe being a female, maybe going to university, um, and I got in off the wait list, so I thought I didn't really have a right to be there in the first place. Um, but I got there, and I played the game, and I got the good grades. And I look back, and I want none of that for my kids. <laughs> uh, so I envy, you know, the freak school you went to. Um, and I'm trying, you know, I'm a realist. I realize, you know, there are more opportunities available because we still live in this society that values a GPA, that values, you know, certain name brand schools. Um, hopefully, we're, we're valuing, we're understanding that there's no there's no one best school in the country, right? These rankings are ridiculous, but it's a pretty entrenched system. Um, and so I realized my kids maybe need to play the game a little bit, but I, I'm hoping, you know, every chance I t get to to support their interests and their creativity um, in a way that I I was so scared of making mistakes that I I never even tried art, right? Um, there's so much I didn't try. There's so much I don't know about myself because I played the game really well. And um, I, I don't wish that upon anybody. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. <laughs> um, and there's something even bigger about this that I think is happening in plain sight that a lot of people miss. And it goes back to the native digital discussion we had a little bit ago. And it's very interesting. And I'll start with a quote that uh, my buddy, entrepreneur Isaac Morehouse, uh, says, which is, he says, be your own credential. And so there's an interesting thing about, well, shit, you know, I really need my kid to go to Harvard or Stanford or Yale. So they have that credential. Mm -hmm. Now, there are certain fields where we need credentials. You and I do not want to go to the heart surgeon who learned heart surgery on YouTube. <laughs> right. And so uh, I have a neuromuscular uh, disorder and I see an incredible uh, UCSF doctor who cares for me about that. And if she didn't care for me, my life would be a very, very horrible place. Mm -hmm. And being credentialed as she is, is very important. So I, I want this comment to sit in a context. Mm -hmm. However, there's an interesting thing in the native digital world, which is no one gives a shit. And I'll give you an example. There's a popular YouTube creator who I forget his real name, but his uh, stage name or his YouTube name is Coffeezilla. And he often gets referred to as Coffee for short. And he has created a niche for himself, a new category for himself. He is the Internet's 
uh, scam exposer. And he started off by exposing crypto scams. And then he's gone on to expose hustle porn stars like Grant Cardone and Ty Lopez and all these other scammers. And he has, I forget what it is, but, you know, million plus followers. This is how he earns his living. The videos are incredibly well-researched, beautifully produced, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, his fans, of which I am one, have no idea. Most of them don't know what his name is. We don't know, does he have a law degree? Uh, Was he a private investigator? Did he work for the FBI or the CIA? Or is he a dude that this got pissed off and has a great analytical mind and went to work and or or some combination? We have no idea. So my point is, Coffeezilla's credential is his work. Mm-hmm. And one other on this, I, I had a PhD in marketing on my podcast a while back, and I'm a three-time public company chief marketing officer. And uh, he asked me where I went to school. And I told him I don't have a GED. And he was shocked. And then I told him that something that really shocked him, which is, and nobody ever asked me that question, ever. You're the first person to ask me where I went to school in as long as I can remember. Because no one cares. Because you know why? With all due modesty, I got a black belt in marketing. And right. no one cares how I got Well, you're speaking to a world of meritocracy, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. In your book and in your thinking and in your learning and grappling with all of this, what have you learned about how we evolve to a more of a true meritocracy? I think it's as simple as just, it, it's harder said than done because we philosophically don't do this. And you could argue that evolution has not allowed us to appreciate people's differences, right? Evolutionarily, we've stuck together, stuck with people who look like us, because then you knew if there was a clan that was different, that was potentially dangerous. So we've got a lot of breeding in us, a lot in our DNA that that causes us not to appreciate differences. But to the extent that we can just, before acting, take a second and say, okay, that my instinct was... I don't believe that person or I don't like that person or whatever it is. If we could just stop and think, okay, okay, what questions can I ask here? How can I be curious? How can I appreciate something different? I think if we could just do that little thing, um, life could get a lot more interesting for all of us. And unfortunately, I think at least in the United States, we're further from that. Mm -hmm. We see it in our political environment, right? So I live in a strange place because... Uh, I'm a radical independent. And I think some of the things the Democrats do are awesome. And some of them are completely insane, bordering on, you know, somebody should stop them. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing about the Republicans. Mm -hmm. And so it's very challenging for me to have a conversation about any political issue because the other people in the conversation in our country Many of them are on a side. Mm-hmm. And I'm not on a side. Right. And how are you on a side on every issue? I mean, the world is so complex and nuanced and varied. And really, you agree with one party line on all issues? Yeah, I'll give you a simple one. Mm-hmm. I'm pro life. Now, I'm also a category designer. And one of core tenets in category design is listen to the words. 
I'm pro-life. I think life begins at conception because best I can tell, when you leave a boy and a girl alone, if an egg happens to meet a sperm, it's going to turn into a life. I don't want there to be any abortions. I'm not a woman, but I know many women who have had them. And every woman I know that's had one says it was one of the most horrible decisions and experiences of her life. I don't want there to be any abortions. And I believe in a woman's right to choose. Okay, well, now how do I have a conversation with somebody? (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's different. Everybody agrees with me and everybody hates me. Right. Yeah, it's really hard on the really politicized issues. Um, On any issue. You talk about our southern border. mm -hmm. I have radical empathy for those immigrants and migrants. Mm -hmm. Every... I'm, my family's an immigrant. Well, we are all are, unless you're native. <laughs> Correct. Mm-hmm. And my family came to Canada originally after World War II, looking for a better life, like so many others came to North America for that better life, which is why people and their babies walk up from Venezuela to dock on our door. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, so I want to have empathy and I want to have a process for um, supporting those people and, 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 and dealing with it in as humane a way as possible. And we need immigration in this country. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, a country with no borders is not a country. And we do have criminals coming across our th- southern border, people who come here wanting to hurt us. And so, again, while well, you either want to build a wall and keep everybody out and you're, you know, somebody who hates immigrants or you're a bleeding heart liberal who wants to give away our country to anybody who wants... N- no. Why are those? Those are false choices, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But this is where this is where we break. Yeah, because you know I don't agree with you on all your political points, um, but I appreciate that you are nuanced in them, and they aren't all on the same side of the fence. And it also sounds like you're always curious and trying to learn more. And you you would allow other people their points of view, um, especially if it's based in real thinking and not. Um, what do you call it? Reflexive, <laughs> a reflexive response. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And so um, you might not agree with me on what I said about abortion. I don't hate you because of it. Right. I, I, I know people who disagree with me vehemently about that. Um, okay, great. And I try to listen and understand and try to find common ground where we might agree. Right. But it doesn't mean I have to hate you. Right. I have many Republican friends who believe strongly that President Trump should be the next president. And I have many Democrat friends who think that if President Trump is the next president, um, something incredibly horrible is going to happen. Okay. I want to listen and learn from all of them. I I don't want to alienate anybody on either side. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny in my book, uh, you know, I grappled with all these issues and I ended up just trying to, and you probably won't appreciate this at all, <laughs> but I, I was on a mission to get people to appreciate kids with learning differences. So when things were highly politicized, issues, words, I, I ended up, um, or even world experiences that were going on at the time that were highly relevant, I ended up striking them because people get so caught up in um, their, as you call it, reflexive point of view that I was worried that they weren't going to listen to my message, which I hope is a message everybody can agree with. And that is, 
kids are valuable and wonderful, especially, or even, you know, it all in their own ways, whether they're quirky, whether they're different, whatever it is. And, you know, I would say the same, these kids grow up into adults. And um, I just don't think that that should be a bipartisan (laughs) um, point of view. Um, So, you know, I, for expediency, struck a lot of the political stuff out of my book, but I appreciate that you're trying to have the hard conversations. um, Yeah. And by the way, Many times I keep those sorts of things out of my conversation as well for those reasons. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to get people all fired up about, you know, Trump or Biden or, you know, pick your thing, abortion, guns, uh, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? Because, of, because they can't hear you because their reflexive brain takes over and they don't do any thinking. And I'm also somebody who says not talking about religion or politics at Thanksgiving is is dumb. We sh- that's exactly what we should be talking about. And I will steer right into some of those issues. I got into a big fight about um, sexism and uh, on LinkedIn not that long ago when a female a former reporter threw a male venture capital firm under the bus for firing a female venture capital partner. And she made all these insinuations about them with no evidence. And so, yeah, I'll steer right into that one. <laughs> it must be an interesting evening at your table. I'll admit, I, I try and do the opposite. Uh, I guess, not that these conversations are good to have. I guess at first I want to have a foundation of respect and love and community. And and if I don't have that, I, I'm not sure I'll make any headway on, on the political concerns. But, you know, the world needs people like you, you willing to say the hard things. So uh, <laughs> more power to you. You're braver than well, listen, I, I should say. There's many places I will not be invited back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Chris, I am so grateful to have been invited here. Thank you for having me in this conversation and um, all you do to support all kinds of diversity, um, especially, um, or I should say, including neurodiversity, which is often left out of the conversation. Um, so thank you for, for having this conversation. Well, Kayla, thank you. Thank you for having the courage to write this book. Thank you. And if people want to learn more, um, I have a website, if you don't mind me saying that. it's uh, Absolutely. And we'll make sure all that stuff okay. is in the show notes as well. But what Great. website would you like people to go to? It's KaylaTaylorWrites.com. Um, and I've actually also included uh, a page with resources on Rights it. Writes with a W, I right, assume. Right, right. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> Cause Correct. Because it, it could be a different kind of rights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> W-R-I-T-E-S. Yes. So, um you know, I I would welcome the thoughts of anybody who's read the book and it, it strikes them um, and would love to continue the conversation. You're welcome back anytime. Thank and, you. Uh, Thanks, Chris. Thank you again. I really appreciated being here. That was the legendary Kayla Taylor. For more information, go to kaylataylorwrites.com and make sure you pick up her legendary new book called Canaries Among Us, a mother's quest to honor her child's individuality in a culture determined to negate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. And don't forget MightyNetworks.com. If you're a marketer or creator who wants to build and monetize a native digital community, head over to MightyNetworks.com today. And don't forget to pick up your copy of The 22 Laws of Category Design. Through powerful insights and practical advice, this book will give you a unique roadmap to defy conventional thinking and create categories of consequence. And we'd also like to thank DoctorsWithoutBorders.org. They're saving lives in the most challenging places in the world. 
Doctors Without Borders was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for their legendary work. So go to doctorswithoutborders.org and learn how you can make a difference right now. And if you want to conquer your category, partner with Atre.net to reinvent your web presence. Atre.net has been delivering category-defining websites for B2B technology companies since 1996. That's Atre.net, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. This Oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it contains content known to the state of California to cause radically non-obvious thinking, new categories, and exponential results. All Oddcasts contain nuts, and all rights are disturbed. Please contact your doctor, lawyer, accountant, shaman, bud tender, and category designer before doing anything about anything you heard today. Everything is the way it is because somebody changed the way it was. This episode was produced and edited by me, Jason DeFilippo. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do technical execution and keep the website a-runnin'. Show notes by GM Simon. RJ and EX Bobus do our web development. Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack. Our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. And we record on Squadcast.fm in Dolby ADHD. Amy Winehouse was right. Listen to the Ramones. Read Carol Dweck. Please be kind and rewind this tape before returning it to the store. Dr. Seuss reminds us, be who you are and say what you feel, because those who mind don't matter, and those who matter don't mind. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together. Our deepest apologies go out to Sam Bankman-Fried. Sorry, Sammy, your parents said you couldn't use the phone today. Till next time, stay safe, stay legendary, and follow your different.